Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. So excited for our guest today, Rod Blagojevich. Now, for those of you who don't know, not only was he on The Celebrity Apprentice, and as I like to say, you're a survivor of Celebrity Apprentice, former governor of Illinois, who may have gotten himself into a bit of a pickle at some point. Uh, First question because a big deal was made out of your answer. So how was the food in prison? What was the first thing you had when you got out? Uh, the food in prison sucked. <laughs> and the first thing I had when I got out was pizza, actually. Really? Um, yeah, you talk so much about the banana split. The, the banana split. Well, I, I couldn't have it the night I came home or the day after because time didn't permit. But I, I did eventually. I was going to say lactose banana. intolerance. What's that? Lactose intolerance. No, no, I don't have a problem with that. Eventually, I, I had uh, not only one banana split, but I've had several since I've been home, and they've been terrific. I'm so happy to hear that. Because your your story, just to sort of go back a little bit in time, is really intriguing to me. You're a Democrat, yet you were trying to sell Obama's seat. Like, another Democrat who just became president which coming out of eight years of Republican leadership was a really big deal. And you're historically a pretty progressive guy. What, it felt very sort of old timey background, back, you know, backroom politics. What, why, why? I mean, I understand why it's tempting, but why did you push the envelope? Well, thank you for that question, Melissa. Um, to begin with, I didn't, I, I didn't cross a line or break a single law. There was no sale of the Senate seat. There was never an attempt to sell a Senate seat. The conversations that ended up sending me to prison were initiated by then-President-elect Obama. Now, he didn't do anything wrong, but either did I. You know, uh, Sabrina and Melissa Winston Churchill, one of the great leaders, used to say that a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. Get to my favorite quotes. What's that? You One like of my that? favorite quotes. I'm a and big it's Churchill so true. fan. It's so true. It's that so true. You- I, and, and to this day, I'm still trying to put my pants on because that lie traveled all the way around the world when that happened. And it, it's been a lie from the beginning and it still is. In fact, that very charge was never a crime. And eventually the appellate court reversed the, that charge, calling it routine political log rolling. The facts are that President Obama, when he was about to win, sent an emissary to me, which is very common in politics, a, a labor union leader who was friendly to both of us, and he had a candidate that he wanted me to pick for Senate, Valerie Jarrett, and they asked me what I was interested in. Not for me to get millions of dollars in a Swiss bank account. That would clearly be criminal. I would never do anything like that. How could you get away with something like that? But we discussed possible horse trades, political deals that are routine in politics. That's what they criminalized. And that would never uphold in the appellate court, because if they upheld that, government would shut down in Washington and in Sacramento, here in Springfield, Illinois, and all the city governments, because that's how government operates, horse trading, political deals. So that never was upheld. Eventually, what they upheld were three fundraising requests where I didn't cross the line. There was no quid pro quo. But by the time that happened, they had to, they, they could never 
undo what they did because they were the criminals who stole a governor from the people, twice elected by the people, with fake charges. And uh, when I was sitting in prison six years into the journey, watching what they started doing to President Trump, a lot of the same people doing the same stuff, using the same playbook, was all very recognizable to me, and it was deja vu all over again. It's a very dangerous thing that's happening in America. The criminalization of routine practices and politics and government for partisan political purposes to steal from the people their right to choose their own leaders through free, fair, and honest elections. And so I never gave in. They dangled a light sentence if I would give in. I wouldn't do it. I fought back and had a second trial because they failed to convict me on their fake corruption charges at a first trial. They used an unlawful standard, moving the line. And if that standard were used against everybody else in politics, governors and senators and congressmen and even presidents, they'd have gone to the shithouse just like I did. So uh, I'm happy that I stood up to them. It's been a long, hard journey. I'm back. And to the day I die, I'm going to keep trying to uh, expose the real truth uh, about what happened here. And that is renegade, rogue, corrupt prosecutors who stole a governor elected by the people. I never took a dime, never took a penny. They never out alleged that. They simply said those conversations were criminal and they weren't. One of the things... One of the things that I'm I'm fascinated about, we all are so lately or recently aware of what goes on in national politics, but I don't think people are aware of just how rough and tumble state politics is. And it feels like what they, you were accused of is kind of almost standard operating procedure across the board. I mean, this cannot have been the first time that these conversations had happened in any kind of a, a situation where a governor had to replace a senator. You just happened to be the guy that got caught. Is this something like, like you said, it wasn't horse, it's not horse trading, it's it's politics. It's politics, it's routine, it's standard, and it's good politics, which leads to good government. And on those take calls, which they wouldn't play, they only played, you know, the ugliest conversations, and they took them out of context, and they never filled them up but they only played 1% of them. They wouldn't let us play the conversations in court that we wanted to play. I publicly kept saying, and still do to this day, play all the tapes. But on those tapes were Rahm Emanuel, giving me ideas on deals I should make for the Senate seat. The former U.S. Speaker of the House, Hassert from Illinois was on him. Harry Reid, the Democratic leader in the Senate, he was on those calls. Any number of de leading Democrats and some Republicans were on those calls advising me on the political deals I should make. Emissaries from President Obama were on those calls. Nobody did anything wrong. They were all legal routine. And part of this was, I believe, an effort to try to get me to, you know, give in, agree to plead guilty to a fake crime and then use that against Obama. And I was the first governor in American history to endorse President Obama when he ran. Uh, and for a lot of complicated reasons, you know, when the gun was pointed at my head, he wasn't in a position where he could be helpful. But uh, politics is a rough and tumble business. In Chicago, it's particularly rough and tumble. Both President Obama came out of the Chicago political world. And I think people listen to your podcast, uh, Melissa and Sabrina, should realize that, yeah, we focused on politics in Washington, the president, the Congress, and we see that on the news all the time. We need to pay more attention to what's happening at state government because that stuff impacts people more directly on a day-to-day -day basis than what they do in Washington. And when governors and mayors are asleep at the switch or they're not getting the job done, or they're doing it wrong, it affects us more in a day-to-day -day life than it does with the stuff that they do from Washington. Right. And that's really one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Like I said, I don't think people realize the importance of our state governments, nor how, I guess the word unseemly isn't the right word, but rough and tumble, 
local politics is extremely aggressive and much more than I think any of us us have been aware of until this year. I mean, what, from, you're almost in the catbird seat. You have been a governor. You have faced crisis. You have done all these things. You have to have been standing back, you know, watching how everything is unraveled with the pandemic and all these different things, you know, bouncing off the walls, freaking out. I know when I watch a show and I see like, or do an interview, watch someone else do an interview, and I see they miss things, I want to jump out of my skin and be like, no, you missed this. How hard was that to just sit and watch? You mean when I was sitting in prison? Watching the pandemic and how all the different states handled it. How did that unfold? I mean, that had to be really hard to watch. So it's all very recognizable to me because of the fact that I was a governor too, and I was, that That's my point is, you know, Illinois is a big state. It's the fifth largest state in America. We're demographically a small version of the United States, the southern part of our state. You can drive from Carbondale, Illinois to Montgomery, Alabama, and get there sooner than if you drive from Carbondale up here to Chicago. So we're a long state, demographically very diff- uh, very much like the United States. And when you're the governor, you're the chief executive. So you're basically like the president of your state. And the responsibilities in terms of COVID and dealing with the distribution of the the vaccines now, uh, dealing with the issues of caring for the, the the public and protecting the public by shutting things down a year ago. All of these things were, of course, properly placed in the hands of the governors. And of course, I would watch and see what our governor here in Illinois was doing. And sometimes I would agree and sometimes I wouldn't. I would watch Governor Cuomo in New York, your governor, Governor Newsom. Um, and my criticism w- with our governor here in Illinois was that I felt he was playing politics too much. It was, you know, this was the thing that the Democrats, and I'm a Democrat, my fellow Democrats saw as a way to defeat Trump in the next election. And I felt that they were overly politicizing a public health crisis. And uh, I, I was, I agreed with our governor and with Cuomo, your governor in New York and California, when they began that first shutdown, the sheltering in place in the beginning, when we didn't really know just how bad this virus was, and we didn't know exactly how it was being spread and how we can protect people. So shutting everything down, I thought in that first phase was the right thing to do. I would argue that the second time around was more politically motivated than it was about public health issues. Uh, And then of course, it's easy now to criticize Governor Cuomo in retrospect, when you look at the situation he's facing with the seniors that he sent to the nursing homes and some of the disabled now, apparently there's a new report coming out that some of uh, the the, uh, people who had been, diagnosed with the the virus were put in a place where there were disabled people and now he has his issues with the sexual harassment allegations very easy to criticize him now Uh, my criticism back then and even now is that you know he and his brother were like the Marx brothers the two of them were entertaining America while at the same time the governor was making big mistakes sending people to infect the elderly and then the big problem was they covered it up because they knew they screwed it up and that could be criminal. I don't mean to laugh, but hearing them referred to as the Marx Brothers does make me giggle. Um, I guess that was that. That is one of the things I wanted to touch about. You know, as as we've been referring to it around here, as governors behaving badly. Um, what in God's name was running through Cuomo's head? What 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 you know? And coming from a political family, you would think he would be smarter. What happens? What 
does it become like you said you're president of your state do you think they start that governors very often try get you know power drunk you know or drunk with 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 power i mean what what is it that you know you see someone like cuomo go off literally has gone off the rails and made poor decision after poor decision after poor decision but see i think that's because we're we're finding out about it now. Right. And and that's that's what I w- really wanted to get into a deeper conversation with Rod like you know your career's uh, at stake you don't you're you're deceiving the people who put you in office you don't tell them what you're doing and then it all falls out and you wonder why there's a huge distrust with the the taxpayers the citizens with politicians and our leaders. It 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 I, I'm of the mindset that um absolute power corrupts and you need to prove otherwise to me because your constituents have continuously proven that statement. Thank you for saying that, Sabrina. That was Lord Acton who said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And that's part of the problem. is isn't just politicians who are elected to office. I consider myself a victim of corrupt, absolute. There's no check and balance on them. They can do whatever they want. Now, having said that, back to Governor Cuomo. I, I, Melissa, I think, and Sabrina, you may very well be doing it too. I think you're referring in part at least to these allegations about his behavior with, with women. Is that, am I right? I'm referring this? to it, all of it. Me I mean, too. Yeah. I'm yes. referring to all of it because you can separate, you know, the sexual, alle- the, the sexual inappropriate allegations because that's generally a power thing. But I always wonder, it's like, especially if you're an elected official, why is there not, you got to be kind of smart. Why are you not checking yourself? Why did he think that he could get away with it? Why? I mean, everything comes out eventually, especially like how he handled COVID, that he went from being America's governor to a punchline now and has destroyed his own career. Yes, and it's still being investigated by their attorney general, but it it appears that that he was very negligent in how he handled his position as governor when he made the decision to not send uh, the seniors uh, to the Javits Center where he had empty beds or to the boat, to the ship that President Trump had sent to New York, but instead sent them to the nursing home that may have cost 15,000 elderly people their lives. We'll know more as this investigation unfolds, Uh, but that's certainly, uh, to me, seems to be the biggest indictment against him. And to me, the trouble among the the complaints I would have is well, he was too busy on TV. As I said, he and his brother were doing their stick and it was, he got caught up in the media attention. And I think he loved the attention. Politicians are apt and I'm not excluding myself from this. You get caught up in that attention and you got a chance now to be a, uh, have a national audience watching you. And he was getting high marks. Apparently he got an Emmy award or something. Wrote a book, wrote a book about it. He wrote a book. Of- yeah. Kind of weird to write a book about how you did so well in the pandemic and did all this great stuff before it's over. I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> just saying. Right. Well, and I think part of it is I think, you know, when you're in a position like that, you've got all these people that work for you. And when I was governor of Illinois, there were 60,000 people that worked under the governor. And I didn't know all of them. I knew a few of them, but I had the ones that worked directly with me in the governor's office. And, you know, you're the big boss. You're the big boss man. And so there's a lot of ass kissing that goes on. And a lot of them will tell you what you want to hear. And frankly, you want to hear what the ones who tell you what you want to hear. 
because you get so much negative stuff from other places, your political enemies, your opponents, members of the other party, the media. And so it's a, in his defense, he probably got caught up with all those people around him who uh, were big ass kissers. And, and then, of course, he's got the situation with these, these allegations of sexual impropriety. You know, my criticism of him there is I don't know all the facts and he's denying many of them, but he has no gain. And if it's true that he's saying, for example, let's uh, play strip poker, uh, he must have not been single very long. I don't think he would have gotten no, very far with that line. And I think when you become the governor, you get all of that power. You feel like all of a sudden people are women in particular may be interested in you in places when maybe they wouldn't have been when you weren't the governor. And we have examples of presidents who yeah. have misused and abused their power. Um, and so it's not a surprise to me that uh, some of those allegations have come out against Governor Cuomo. And uh, let's see what happens. I think he's entitled to due process and he's got a right to defend himself. And we'll see where it goes. But uh, and there's a there's a part of me that feels bad for him because I've been through a different version of that. And it's very lonely. And when they start coming after you and make accusations, your political enemies pile on. And Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, it's not the words of your enemies that you remember, it's the silence of your friends. And so I suspect that Governor Cuomo right now is very, very lonely and has few, if any, friends. That's, yeah, that's deep. Well, you know what? There is a movement to recall Governor Newsom here in California. Um, it's really interesting how he went from being like this star at the beginning of the pandemic um, to continuously being called out for hypocrisy. Um, everything from dining indoors repeatedly without a mask to having his kids back in person, learning this fall, not on Zoom. Um, what would you say to him? Because right now I'm just kind of like, you're white noise. I hear you. You literally are white noise. And I'm not even kidding with that. Um, <laughs> and that's it. It's like, talk to the hand. Yeah. The hypocrisy of yes. what has gone on in California is staggering. What's your take on that? Yes, and that's, we have that here with our governor of Illinois. He's inherited a lot of money from the Hyatt Hotel fortune, and, but he shut down a lot of businesses the second time around and we've lost 4,000 businesses, a lot of them small, most of them small, family owned businesses. Uh, more than 4,000 people have lost their jobs because of that shutdown. At the same time, you know, his family's going to Florida to one of their many homes and they're, they're riding horses and he's got a farm in Wisconsin where they have different rules on shutting down restaurants and his family's been seen dining out. And then you've got your governor caught dining out. The hypocrisy is, is astonishing. And it's a valid issue, I think, for the people to hold these elected officials accountable for. If you're gonna lead and you're gonna require sacrifice of the public, which is what this is, and they're right in many ways to ask for the sacrifice because this is a deadly virus that's killing people and you need to stop the spread of it. But when you're going to do that, you have to lead by example. And you should even do more than what you expect the public to do. That's what you signed out for when you asked them to hire you to be a leader. And when they blatantly violate that and are hypocritical the way they are, they undermine public confidence. And they're telling the people of California, the people of Illinois, that, you know what? We have inside information. This virus really ain't as bad as we're telling you it is. Because if we thought it was that bad, we wouldn't be out right now. So when Governor Newsom's caught having dinner at a French restaurant, uh, he's not only saying the rules don't apply to me that apply to you. He's also saying, I don't think this pandemic is that bad because I don't fear it because I'm out here and I'm not afraid of getting it. So it, it's a very bad, bad thing to do as a leader. And I think the voters will have to make a decision in California on 
just how accountable they want to they want to make him be. Yeah, the recall movement's pretty huge. Yeah, it is. It is. So I think the people here do get the state level of involvement and really trying to police it in a way that it's like, no, it's it's not okay. You need to be accountable for this. You know, we stood by you and put you there, but we can take you out as well. Well, I think people forget that all across the board politically. But, you know, what's been interesting is a lot of governors have sort of had different reopening strategies. You have people like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas who publicly have looked really uh, ill-informed and foolish multiple times with some of the decisions they've made through the last year to the point where, like, right now, local mayors and community officials are going against, especially in Florida, what the governor has said is okay. How important is it that they, do you think they should be listening to the boots on the ground? Because the mayor of Miami knows more about what's happening in Miami than DeSantis does. And to put these sort of, I mean, how important is the information gathering from your local constituents and your local leaders when you're trying to make smart decisions? It's all important. You know, one of the legendary speakers of the house was a guy by the name of Tip O'Neill back in the 1980s from Massachusetts, Boston. And he said, uh, all politics is local. And, and he's right. And, and it also goes to governing and having your ear to the ground and being close to the people so you understand what their challenges are and what, what they're facing. And this, this, again, explains the hypocrisy. These guys, they become governor. They're so far high up and they're so far removed from the people. And uh, that could very well be the problem in Florida as well. But no, Melissa, your point about listening to the mayors and listening to those leaders at the local level is extremely important. And then it should guide you on the decision that you make. Now, I don't know all the specifics about what the governor of Texas or the governor of Florida, what they're using to make their decisions. I don't even know all the details of what our governor here in Illinois is using. I just know my own personal experience, but I would be very, very, uh, I would be very cautious to not listen to the advice of the mayors and the local leaders who understand what's happening close to home a lot more than I would bureaucrats and others who work for the governor. And now you have to also balance that against the political motivations. Because unfortunately, so much of this is driven by politics, and you have the divide between the two political parties, and too frequently, in fact, it's almost the rule, not the exception, both parties are more interested in keeping the other party from solving a problem than actually solving the problem together. They'd much rather see the problem exist and point fingers and blame the other side than actually come together and solve problems. And I would hope, but unfortunately, we haven't seen it, that in something like a pandemic like this, we would have had more cooperation between both parties. And we didn't. The only time I've really seen meaningful cooperation that was really sincere was after 9-11 when I was a new congressman, relatively new, and our country was attacked. And I saw for the next few months after 9-11, Democrats and Republicans putting aside partisanship and actually working together for our country. I would have hoped they would have been that way during this pandemic, but they weren't. It was very highly politicized, still is. And it's very difficult for the people to sort out you know, who's right and who's wrong, and what is exactly the right course of action. Thankfully, we have a vaccine and that's moving forward. And and President Trump, I think, deserves a great deal of credit for that. Yeah, I think everyone deserves credit for getting it. You know, I think Trump deserves credit for getting it in the works. And I think Biden deserves credit for putting the pedal to the metal in in distribution. You know, and again, that's a political thing. Nobody wants to say, Everybody was a participant 
in in getting to where we are literally today. Rod, in your in your opinion, how do we get back to the middle, you know, as Americans, since we're so polarized right now? It's a great question, Sabrina. It's and it's it, it's troubling to me because uh, you know I watch it all unfold and. And there's so many elements to this. There's so many levels to it. It, it, it goes to issues in the colleges and the schools. Uh, the political parties are so polarized. The, the extremes of both political parties, what Teddy Roosevelt used to call the lunatic fringe of his own party. Well, those extremes exist in both parties. There's that cynical political element where neither side really wants to come together and solve anything, lest the party that's in power gets credit for solving it. And the solution, therefore, the party that's out of power doesn't feel like they'll have a better chance in winning the next election. So this is very troubling. And here another Winston Churchill quote, he said, democracy is the worst system ever devised by man except for all the rest. So there's the problem, what's the solution? I think, I think there's a new politics going on in America that's an undercurrent, that's bubbling up. And we see it on both sides too. It's represented in, with President Trump and his supporters, Bernie Sanders and his supporters. They're both philosophically and ideolo ideologically poles apart. But the common thing they have together is a, a disgust with kind of business as usual, establishment politics, the special interest influence in politics, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the corporate interests, the biases of the news media um, on both sides. It's very difficult to get, you know, where are you going to get your news and who do you believe? It's very difficult for the American people to believe what they're getting these days because so much of it is so hyper-partisan. So I think part of the, the answer might be you know, the development of this sort of, I would call, silent majority of Americans out there, forgotten Americans who have common sense and they're not extreme on either side. They love their country. They recognize the challenges we face. They recognize the racism that exists in America. At the same time, they understand there's no easy solution to it. Uh, they understand that if we're going to solve the racial disparities and the racial problems in our country, that the better way to do it is to try to come together rather than to keep dividing. So I think there's a lot of approaches that have to be made. The hard part is being able to communicate that with the current way that the media is and, and even social media, because it's so, and which is new to me, by the way, because when I was gone eight years, you know, you find out it's very humbling. You know, they take you out of the world. You ain't so great. Don't think the world's going to stop and wait for you to get back in the world before it keeps moving. It just keeps spinning around. And when you get back in it, you realize so much has changed and nobody waited for you. And so all of this social media and the ways people communicate today with the iPhone that I'm using here, all very new to me, Facebook and the internet and Twitter, all new to me. It's a new form of communication that on the one hand is good because you can directly speak to people. On the other hand, there's a lot of misinformation that gets thrown around and there's a lot of hateful speech that goes around. And so we have to sort that out. It's part of, uh, I think, the growing pains of the new reality. But this new information and the way we disseminate information is just as dramatic as the printing press was back in, uh, when was that, the 15th century? It was, it was a while ago. You know, the other, I was going to say, it was not a happy day in our household when my mother figured out Twitter. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> you know, I met your mother on Celebrity Apprentice, by the way. She's such a nice person. God bless her. Oh, I thank was in you. deep trouble. She was very kind to me and, and considerate. She knew the mess I was in. And in, on the first episode, uh, evidently I served her a hamburger late and it was, I guess, cold. And, and I had to explain that to Trump in the boardroom. And anyway, he didn't fire me then, he fired me later. And by the way, he's the only president of American history to have fired and freed the same guy, even Abraham Lincoln. 
I, where, I was going to say, where were you when you found out that your sentence had been commuted? Well, I was in prison. I was about ready to go. Well, I mean, how did, you, how did you find out? Because I had read that some of your, your, your other cellmates or prison mates, I don't know what the correct term would be, knew before you. Yeah, they did. They, they, uh, one of them said he saw it on the local news, at Denver News, because I was incarcerated in the Denver area. And, um, and there had been some false starts before where there's some news reports that it might happen even a year before that, and it didn't. And then in maybe six months before that, they'd actually taken me from the facility and put me in a cell as they were processing me out in August of 2019, which was before February 18th of 2020 when it actually happened, and that didn't happen. So I was hopeful, but I wasn't certain. And so this guy's a big, tough guy, and I remember actually grabbing him, which you're not supposed to do because you can't touch inmates. And put him against the wall. Nobody was there, and I was asking him, "Now tell me exactly what you heard on the news." <laughs> tell me. Why did these guys get it wrong? Huh? Tell Tell me the truth. Yeah, the 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 yeah. Chicago came out. <laughs> yes, it, it kind did. of did. It kind of did, and then because I kept pressing them, and because they get it wrong sometimes, they're well intentioned, but they don't hear it right. And then as I was doing that, I glanced over. The TVs are segregated in prison, and they're segregated by race, actually. So they have the the white TV room. The the, the black TV, which I've heard that I've never heard that I've heard that in very segregated world. And it, it's encouraged by the powers that be for many reasons. You got to run with your own and hang around your own car, which I never acknowledged or accepted. I would think everybody enjoys Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> yeah, well, you can watch that one on the black TV. I don't know that the white guys were watching it, but um, <laughs> in any event, white TV. Watching the wheel. <laughs> Fox News is on the on the TV that the, a lot of the white guys would watch. And I glanced over and I saw President Trump himself at Andrews Air Force Base. And then I just ran in there. And you you can't hear the TV. You have to put headphones on. I borrowed someone's headphones and he was talking about me. And then I knew I was coming home that day at some point. And I was going to go running, but I couldn't get it in because I had to pack up and get ready to go home. See, I would have been like screaming and like, it's time mm. for me to go open the door. I had enough of you people. I'm out of here. I love the fact that you were, I was planning on running, but I decided to take the day <laughs> off. The I day had off. to pack. <laughs> Why? Can I say something? Can, just very quickly about the prison thing. And Sabrina, thank you for what you said about, yeah, you're excited. You want to go home. Part of it is though, and, and, and it's delightful and it's tremendously happy. On the other hand, there's a bittersweet quality to it because you've made friends there and a lot of these guys are stuck and you're leaving and you feel bad because you're going to go home and they're stuck. Now, I've been there for eight years, which is a long time. That's a yeah. long time, Rod. I'm long sorry. That is a long time. Prison for politics. But I had an element of me where I was leaving friends behind. And then I like to say this, too. I learned a lot of lessons about our criminal justice system at the federal level. It's broken. It can be corrupt and it's racist. And I was in prison with guys, black guys, first time nonviolent drug offenders, young men when they went to prison, doing 20, 25 years in prison, denying them any chance of a second chance. And similar cases, white guys on meth cases, black guys on crack cases, same amount of drugs. The white guys getting seven years, five years, black guy gets 25 years, a tremendous disparity in sentencing and a complete absence of any sense of mercy. And there can't be justice if it's not tempered with mercy. And you can't have a system that is going to work if it denies anybody a chance to make up for the 
mistakes that they made, the crimes they've committed, by keeping them in prison for 25 years, destroying their families, denying their children of their dads, nonviolent first-time offenders. It's very bad. And uh, it needs to be reformed. I was going to say, you, you, you just got very, you, you were speaking very passionately just now about that. Is that, Bunze, is that your next thing to do? Do you think, you want to say what's or next? Well, after the book. After the book. We all need to go get the advance. After the book. After the book. You know, his wife's like, go, who's amazing, by the way. People have not been known your wife. She's amazing. You Thank know. you, Melissa. Go. She needs you to go write a book. She's readjusting to you being home too. A little, a little time of you in your own room is not such a bad thing. Um, Has she been talking to you? No. <laughs> She's like, but wait, is that is that your next thing though? Are you, you seem really passionate about prison reform. Is that going to be your next adventure? It must be. There has to be a reason to explain how I was, how I was saved. I mean, otherwise, if it wasn't for President Trump, I have to do fourteen years. And so I, it was terribly long, but it could have been worse. And there had to be a reason why I would do Celebrity Apprentice. I never watched shows like that. As a former governor, I needed to make a living. And, and, I, and he was very kind to me personally. Then he goes on to be president. Never in my wildest dreams that I imagined that Donald Trump would be interested in running for president or be in politics. And then some of the similar things they did to me, they were doing to him. So the convergence, those unlikely convergence of events there has to be a higher power that's that's directing this. And it would be wrong of me if I didn't embrace this blessing and good fortune that I was given to not help some of the guys and others who've gone through circumstances far worse than mine. And I learned so much and I had to have learned all these things for a larger reason. So I must do something on criminal justice reform. I've begun doing certain things. We've been locked away and so that's been tough. But uh, I do believe that I, I have real street cred on this subject. I, 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 think you, I think you do. I think you do. I think your homies that you left behind will be very appreciative of your efforts. And, and, I, and it's the right thing to do because the system is broken, wrong and racist. And, you know, a woman by the name of Michelle Alexander wrote a great book in 2010 called The New Jim Crow. And she was very critical of the Democrats for the 1994 crime bill, which Biden wrote. And uh, President Clinton signed, and my Senator Durbin voted for as a congressman. And they condemned through that bill because it was tough on crime and it was a way to get votes in the suburbs. But she wrote this book and she talked about that and other things that has condemned a whole generation of young black men to prison. Uh, again, first time nonviolent offenders in most cases. And it, it created a new system of racism in America where you can legally discriminate against somebody uh, because he's a felon and because he has the F and you can't get public housing because you're a felon. A law passed by Democrats and, and Republicans back in 1995. And they can't get jobs. They have no hope and new, any opportunity. So when they do get home and they haven't been properly trained in prison, because that's another thing that I saw, the job training doesn't exist like it ought to. This is an opportunity to give young men a chance to learn things they didn't learn because of the difficult circumstances that they grew up in. Now there's a chance to correct that at the Department of Corrections, but they don't. They just simply pass time. They mark time. There's not enough learning there, not provided by the facilities. And so they come home and they have no opportunities. And too many of them, because they, they don't have opportunities, they go back to what the only thing they know how to do. And that, unfortunately, is a lucrative business, and that is selling drugs. And that's why the recidivism rates, recidivism rates are so high, because a lot of these young men, when they've grown into adulthood, they come back with no opportunities and they can't make a living. 
So these are really complicated and very challenging issues. And I do think that that is something I must work on. And I really believe I could, I could do a lot of good working on them. You are You're amazing. so frighteningly smart. Yes. And your Charming. voice. Well, yes. And you have the best hair. Oh, say, my goodness. And amazing hair. Yes, amazing. Amazing hair. Got to ask you, what are the products? But we'll do that offline. Unless you have an endorsement for hair products. Then you can say it out loud. Um. I can say this, Melissa. There was a, I, intro, I endorsed a, a candidate for the United States Senate here, an independent name, Willie Wilson, Dr. Wilson. And at that first, that was my first press event since coming home. And a reporter noticed that my hair was less gray now that I'm home than it was <laughs> when I came home. So it's, it's more than home cooking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like, I liked you, the silver fox. You got to embrace that. Okay. It, it gives you it gives you sort of a gravitas. Yeah, I, well, I do think that. But you know, I run a lot, and I feel like I run slower when my hair is wider. Oh, oh. well, that's there. There you go. There you go. There's an insider tip. Rod, you are so smart, and your voice is so needed. And I have absolutely loved having you on today's show. What and a pleasure! Anytime, total pleasure. Anytime. God bless both of you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 